Praise the Lord by getting out His Word and preparing to study it together. We're in John chapter 5 this week. In your handouts, does it say chapter 5 verses 30 through 47? No? Well, yours does? Okay, well that's, those are the verses we're in this week. John chapter 5 verses 30 through 47. Have you ever been around someone who just seems to operate on a different wavelength? It's not just that they're smart, you know, because there are a lot of smart people out there. There are a lot of really, really, really smart people out there. I'm talking about people who seem to operate on like a a higher non-human plane. They not only seem to have above average intellect, but also above average work ethic and focus and emotional intelligence and wisdom. I'm talking about the kind of people that when they engage in debate, they do so in a way that seems like they're somehow cheating. When they field questions and interviews or discussions, they seem to pick up on the question that's underneath the question that everyone else in the room seems to miss. And when they respond to these questions, they do so in a way that you're thinking, I would never think of that. I would never respond to that question in that way. These are the kinds of people who can listen to an issue, make sense of it almost immediately, and then cut to the quick of the matter with a kind of speed and precision that seems godlike. I have uh, had the pleasure of meeting two or three of these people in my life thus far, and friends, I'm here to tell you, they are all human. Many of them are extraordinarily bright, but they are also very well trained. So well trained, in fact, that we feel like they have supernatural powers, but they don't. No one is psychic. I know some of y'all have told me you have ESPN, right? But no one is psychic. That's a joke. X-ray vision is not real. The pill from Limitless that turns you into a super genius, that's fiction. And the nootropic supplements that Joe Rogan sells that says they'll make you a clearer thinker, those are about as effective as placebo. Zarathustra is dead and Rasputin was a con man. Every one of the greatest minds of history has proven quite often and quite tragically to be very, very human. For every Napoleon, there is a Waterloo. For every Churchill, there's a Gallipoli. For every great man or woman, there is a disaster, an egregious error, a blind spot so big you can drive a truck through. There is humanity. And then there's Jesus. As we've been walking through the Gospel of John, I think we've seen that he just operates on a different wavelength. He operates on a higher plane. We've learned that, well, he does that because he's God in the flesh. And every encounter we have with Jesus, we see the evidence of the wisdom of God personified in all of these interactions. And this morning's text is no different. As we come to a close of John chapter 5, we see Jesus continuing to interact with his detractors, 
And in so doing, he outclasses them in every single way. Well, let's see that for ourselves. Let's, let's read the text together, starting in John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if you were here last week, that fits in perfectly with what we looked at then. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, which means you went and investigated him, you checked out his ministry, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is them that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may live. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word to us today. Amen? Amen. This morning's sermon is going to have two parts. The first half will basically help us understand the context of these verses. And then in the second half, we're going to get down into the theology and application of what we learn from Jesus in this text. So, Part one, I got three points for you here. I'll just give them to you as we go. Uh, and I'll, I'll get you to the first one here in a minute. But let's, let's, let's remember some of the context. Let's do a little bit of a review of where we've been so far in John chapter 5. Three weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath. Now, when the Jews accused Jesus of breaking God's law for doing this, Jesus said, that's not possible. I am God. I'm just doing what my father does. That was the first part of Jesus' argument. Okay, that was three weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at the second portion of Jesus' argument. He said, you're judging me, but ha-ha, one day I'm going to judge you. And then finally, this week, 
we're going to see Jesus' final word on the matter. This is his final interaction with his detractors who have accused him of blasphemy for healing a man on the Sabbath. And in this morning's text, Jesus says, Okay, I'll play your little game. You guys want to accuse me of blasphemy? Fine, let's do that. Let's bring witnesses. If you want to put me on trial, let's bring witnesses to the stand and let them give testimony about who I am. Now this move on Jesus' part, it's pure genius. Especially when you remember who Jesus is talking to. He's, he's talking to the religious leaders and what he's doing is he's communicating to them in their own language. He knows that they're experts in the Old Testament. They're experts in the law. So he says, well, you must know, of course, that in the Old Testament, under the law, that if you want to accuse someone of some serious crime, such as blasphemy, that you have to have at least two credible witnesses to be able to carry out the sentence, for the charge to be validated. So, you want to put me on trial? Let's call our witnesses. And as the trial begins between Jesus and these religious leaders, we see that Jesus calls four witnesses to the stand. Remember earlier when I said I had three points for you on this first half? I meant that I had five. I was just checking to see if you guys were paying attention. Good job. You passed. So these first four witnesses are going to be the first four points of the sermon. John the Baptist... God the Father, Scripture, Moses. And then we'll have a fifth point, which is the discredited witness. John the Baptist, God the Father, Scripture, Moses, and then finally, the discredited witness. So let's run through these. We're going to look at these quickly. The first witness that Jesus calls to the stand is John the Baptist. Look at verse 33 again. He says, you sent to John, which is like you guys went and investigated him. You checked out his ministry. And he has borne witness to the truth. And Jesus is saying, that's him. It's me. John bore witness about me and my ministry. Now go down to verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, right? He, he was illuminating the world with the truth of God. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So Jesus is saying, yeah, at first you guys really liked John the Baptist, you know, you were, you were kind of digging what he was doing, you know, you appreciated what he was saying. You don't really love him so much these days, but you were kind of fond of him at first and you should know that he validates my ministry. He says that the whole point of his ministry is to point to me and my ministry. That's witness number one. Witness number two is God. Look at verses 36 and 37. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, like healing the man on the Sabbath, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So Jesus says, hey, just so you know, I, I have John the Baptist, his witness, his testimony is on my side, but... I have someone much greater than a prophet who bears witness about me, and, well, that's God himself. That's a pretty bold move, right? Calling God to the witness stand on your behalf, saying, God's on my side. That's what Jesus does. 
And the logic that he, that he has here is he says, well, you can know that if you just look at the signs that I'm doing, right? They show that I am, in fact, from God. They're not the signs of a con man or a snake oil salesman or a magician like in Pharaoh's court. These are legit miracles from heaven that show that Jesus is, in fact, from heaven. Later in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews will make the same argument about Jesus. He says this in Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 4. It, that being the gospel, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, while God also bore witness, that's the same language as in John 5, bore witness to the Lord by signs and wonders and various miracles. So the author of Hebrews understands Jesus to be divinely validated by God through these miracles. Now, it's either Jesus is really who he is or he's not. There's no other option. He's either a liar or a lord or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would say. That's the second witness. Third witness, Scripture. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. What does it mean that the scriptures bear witness about Jesus? It means that Jesus says, hey, I'm from God. And if you want to check that, if you want to validate that, all you have to do is go back and just read your Bible. That's what he's saying to the Jews. Just go back and read the Old Testament and you'll see promise after promise after promise pointing forward to me. I am the fulfillment of every promise that God made in the Old Testament to save you. We're going to talk about that a little more later. But Jesus says, look at me, I am the main point of Scripture. The Scripture that you guys search, the Scripture that you guys claim to know, they're all about me. And then finally, and somewhat connected, but we'll make a distinction, number four, the witness of Moses. Look at the very end of this morning's text, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. As Jesus wraps up his defense, he says, Hey, you know, you know that, that guy that you all think is the greatest prophet ever? You know the guy who wrote the first five books of the Bible that you love so much that you've spent your lives memorizing and trying to apply? Yeah, well, he's not a witness on the prosecution side. He's actually on my side. Everything that he wrote, he wrote anticipating me in the day of my coming. His whole ministry was just a shadow pointing forward to me and my ministry. This is huge. This is significant. You have to remember, this whole ordeal is about Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath and supposedly breaking the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the one that they want to honor and respect. The Jewish leaders think for sure if we had to take Jesus to court and put him on trial with charges of blasphemy, if there was anyone who would take up our side, it would be Moses. And Jesus says, you guys could not be more wrong. So those are the four witnesses that Jesus calls to give testimony on his behalf. But he's not done yet. 
he has one more witness to call to the stand. And it's a pretty big one. Point number five, it's the witness that is discredited. The discredited witness. Look at verses 37 through 44. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice, you, that's the Jewish opponents, you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, some false Messiah who just wants glory for himself, if he comes, oh, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? If you've ever watched a criminal trial or served time in jury duty or watched any kind of law drama on TV or in the movies, then you know that one of the main things that lawyers do in big trials is they try to discredit the witnesses from the opposite team, right? And they do this in a lot of ways. But the main aim is always the same. It's to try to invalidate the testimony of the opposing witnesses by demonstrating that they are in some way, hopefully in many ways, untrustworthy. Well, the same thing was true in biblical days. You, you would want to try to discredit the witness. And so in this morning's text, Jesus looks his accusers in the face and he says, the only testimony you have left to bring against me is your own. The only witnesses that you can bring to the stand is yourselves. There's no one left. And guess what? You are not a credible witness. You do not have a credible testimony. Your words are inadmissible in this law court. Well, why are they inadmissible? Why are they unfit witnesses? Jesus just gave us seven reasons in that text. His voice you have never heard, verse 37. His form you have never seen, verse 37. His word is not in you, verse 38. You reject his son, verses 40 and 43. You don't understand his word, verse 39. You don't have the love of God in you, verse 42. And you believe in lies like false messiahs, verse 43. Do you see what I mean when I say that Jesus just operates on a higher plane? He's on a different wavelength. His thoughts are higher than the thoughts of us and his opponents. He takes every single one of the witnesses that the Jews would call against him and calls them in his favor. And what do the Jews have left after that? They've lost. They lost John the Baptist. They lost God, they lost the Bible, they lost the great prophet Moses, whom they set their hopes upon. Who else can they call? No one. Imagine yourself just sitting there as a juror in a trial like this. Your jaw would drop lower and lower to the floor every time the defense 
calls yet another witness from the prosecution's bench to give testimony. And when the last witness takes the stand, the prosecution itself, the defense attorney says, you claim to be holding court on behalf of God, but you cannot hear God, you have not seen God, you do not love God, and you do not know God's word. This whole trial is a miscarriage of justice. Well, that would be it, wouldn't it? Trial would be over. And so it is in John chapter 5. Jesus shuts down his opposition for a time. The battle is won, but as we're going to see as we continue through the rest of John's gospel, the war will rage on. Do you guys remember Jack Phillips? Does that name ring a bell to anyone in here? He was the owner of the, still is, the owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop. Does that business name ring a bell for anyone? He was the man who owned the business that refused to bake a cake for a gay marriage celebration. And that was a really big case, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And praise God, Jack Phillips won. And he might have thought, wow, the, the war is over. What a relief that must have been for him. But it wasn't. In 2018, Masterpiece was sued once again for refusing to make a cake, this time for a gender transition celebration. He won that case as well. The people backed down before it even went up the courts. Great. Praise God. Maybe he thought after that, the war was finally over. But no, it turned out to just be another battle. Masterpiece is once again being taken to court, this time for refusing to bake a trans-themed birthday cake. This is very much what Jesus' interactions will be like with the Jewish leaders throughout the rest of his ministry. As we walk through the Gospel of John, we're just going to see this over and over again. Skirmish after skirmish, battle after battle. Jesus will win these battles, and then his opponents will take a new angle, try a different tactic, until finally they are able to bring false witnesses, earthly witnesses, lesser witnesses, against Jesus in the trial for his life. Okay, so that's the context. Okay, I think we kind of understand what's happening in these verses this morning. Now let's move on to part two of the sermon and dig down into some theology and application, okay? And I think I, think I have it right this time, three points for you. I'll give them to you as we go. The first point, reading scripture like Jesus. Reading scripture like Jesus. <clears throat> if I were to ask you what this book is all about, what would you say? If, if I were to say like, hey, 66 books, 40-something authors, right? But what is this whole book about? What's the point of this story? I wonder how you would respond. Well, a lot of people have done a lot of work trying to answer that, and there are a lot of different good answers one way to understand the entire story of the Bible is to view it as the story of life and death. It begins with a perfect God who creates life. Creates all kinds of life. Plant life, animal life, most importantly and supremely human life. And then you know how the story goes. Sin comes, and with sin comes death. 
And I shouldn't have to prove this to you that death dominates our story. You can see it on the skin that's flaking away on the back of your hand. You can see it in the plants that are dying in your living room as we speak because you haven't been watering them like you should. You can see it in the ICUs that, you know, see so many people pass during their time there. We know that death rules this fallen world. But that's not, that's not the end of the story, right? We know that the rest of the story says that God is merciful and that as the drama of Scripture, the drama of redemption unfolds, God promises that He's not going to leave this world in a state of decay, right? He, he makes the promise that one day He'll come and redeem us from the curse of the fall. He'll eradicate sin and He'll put death to death. Right? That's the story of Scripture. Now, I think this much was clear to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was having this interaction with, those who were opposing Jesus. At one level, they understood the grand drama of redemption. But at another level, the most important level, they, they didn't understand the Bible at all. They knew that they were spiritually dead. Okay, that's good. And they knew that God would make a way for them to live again, but they totally misunderstood what that way is or what it would be. They knew that God revealed the way of life in his word, fantastic, but they couldn't see the way that God had revealed when it came to them in the person of Jesus standing right before them. When they searched the scriptures, as verse 39 says that they were diligent to do, they were looking for life. But all they found were rules. They were looking for life, but all they found was law. And I think a lot of us know exactly what that's like. I mean, you've never encountered a scribe or a Pharisee in, you know, 2021 America, but you've probably encountered Christians like this. You've probably been at churches like this. You've maybe even had a pastor who shepherded like this. I'm talking about people and churches and organizations that, that treat the entire story of the Bible as if it's just a list of do's and don'ts that will make God pleased with you or angry with you. Well, friends, that's not what this book is about at all. This book is about Jesus. After Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he appeared to some men walking down a road, and they were confused and scared, and, and Jesus says, hey, I don't understand how you guys don't understand. Haven't you read your Bibles? Well, yeah. And then it says this in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus is the one who's doing this. He's teaching them this Bible study. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus says that this entire book is ultimately about him. The Jews missed that point entirely. And I wonder this morning, friends, if maybe you have too. I wonder if you have too. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, Sean, I've tried Christianity before, you know? I've tried it. It just didn't help. I read the Bible. I tried to obey the rules, but nothing happened. Nothing got better. Some things got worse. Well, if that's you, I want you to listen to me very carefully. That is not the way this works. That is not Christianity. That's not what this book is about. 
this book is not primarily a paint-by-numbers access to a better life. This is a book that tells you about a person, God. And if you've searched the scriptures and if you've found nothing but rules, then you have not learned to read this book in the right way. And if, and, if, and if you only know how to read this book the wrong way because that's the only way anyone has ever taught you, man, I hate that for you. And I'm sorry that you've had to go through that. And I've been through that. And a lot of people in this church have been through that. And it's terrible. What, a, what an atrocious burden to bear. But I want you to know that that's not a burden that God wants you to bear. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. One of the easiest ways that you can learn how to unread the Bible the way that you learn to read it and learn to read it properly is by joining a church and being taught well, having the word preached faithfully, having the word taught faithfully, being discipled by someone who can really help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. I want you to know that this book is the story of a God who loves us. It's the story of a God who sent his son to save us, to bring us into a relationship with himself so that we might love him and know him forever. Now, I'm not saying that there are no rules in this book. Of course there are. But there are rules that are born out of a relationship. There are rules that are born out of a God who loves us and wants the best for us and who knows that sin is not the best for us and will only lead to his wrath. But my point is, is if you've tried the rules without the relationship, well, then you haven't really tried the gospel at all. You may be thinking, okay, well, Sean, how do I, how do, I do that? Well, just keep listening. Point number two, deceit, not belief. Deceit, not belief. Look at verses 45 and 47 again. I know we already read them, but I don't think you can read them too many times. So let's, let's look at it again. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Here he's speaking of the Jews. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And that has to be an extra little twist of the knife. You hope in him, but he's going to accuse you. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? What I want us to see here, friends, is that the Jews don't have a comprehension problem when it comes to reading Scripture. It's not like they don't understand Scripture because they have a learning disability. You know, it's not like they're dyslexic. It's, it's not like, you know, they just need to go to seminary and take a couple of hermeneutics classes and really tighten up some of their you know, the, the methods of interpretation that they've learned. No, Jesus says the reason why they don't understand Scripture is because they don't believe Scripture. That's what all this Moses stuff is about. Remember, Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible, which were the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament. And in this morning's text, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, you don't believe Moses which means that you don't believe what he wrote, which means you can't understand the Bible, which means ultimately you can't believe in me. In this morning's text, Jesus is telling his opponents, and really he's telling all of us here this morning, that he is the touchstone of 
our professions of faith. You remember what a touchstone is, right? We've all used it to check the quality of our gold and silver. Now, maybe it's been a while since you've taken physical science or since your grandpa showed you what a touchstone is. A touchstone is, wait for it, a stone that you would use to check the quality of metals. So you would have like a high quality piece of gold, hopefully like 98% purity, and you would take it and you would rub it on one side of the piece of the stone, and then you would take the other side that you wanted to check to make sure it wasn't impure and therefore less valuable, and you would rub it right next to that. And the, the surface of the stone was porous enough to scratch off a little bit of the gold of each piece. And you could hold it up, and if you were an expert, you could look at it in just the right light, and you could evaluate the purity of the metal that you were trying to test to see if it was authentic and therefore valuable or polluted, corrupted, and therefore worthless. That's what Jesus tells the Jews that he is for their professions of faith. If you believe in me, then you truly believe in God. If you rejected me, then you are confused, you are deceived, you are wrong. Your profession of faith is false. And friends, nothing has changed since John chapter 5, 2,000 years ago. Jesus is still the true touchstone of faith for anyone who professes to believe in God. A right understanding of who Jesus is as he has revealed himself in his word, a belief in that Jesus is the touchstone of the faith of the Mormons. And guess what? They don't pass the test. They believe in a Jesus who is a lesser God, a created being, the half-brother of Satan. Their faith is false. He is the true touchstone of faith for the Jews who reject Jesus, who think he was just one among many false messiahs. Their faith in God is false. He is the true touchstone of faith for Muslims who claim to honor God more than we honor God because they believe that Jesus wasn't God, but in fact, he was just a prophet, but not even the greatest prophet, the prophet right behind Muhammad. Their profession of faith in God is invalid. Now that's for the world, but church, this application is for you. Be on guard. Be on guard. You have to know that if it was possible for the Jews to be deceived about their profession of faith, it is possible for you to be deceived about yours. Friends, you have to know how easy it is to deceive ourselves into thinking that we believe God's word when we don't. We can read it, we can study it, we can memorize it, we can try to apply it to our lives, we can even do so compulsively like the Jewish leaders who Jesus says, oh, I know you guys try to apply the Bible, you tithe even the tiniest parts of the spice cabinet in your house, your mint, your dill, your cumin, I mean, you guys are on it and trying to apply the Bible that you know so well and yet you do not believe it. That can be us. We live in the Christian South. Do I have to sell you on this point? Do you not understand the legacy of this Christ-haunted South where we live? Hordes and hordes of people who say, of course I believe in God. Of course I believe the Bible. 
I go to church every Sunday and I always read the scriptures. And yet we know that so much of that is just cultural Christianity. It's, it's comfortable. It's nominalism. It's not real. Now, lest I be accused of just picking on the South unnecessarily, you should know that the South is not unique in its experience of this phenomenon. This story is as old as the faith itself, which is why the author of Hebrews, writing just shortly after the days of Jesus, he says this to Christians that he's concerned about. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Do you see that? Take care, brothers, brothers. I'm going to address you as you identify. You profess to be Christian, so I'm going to call you that, but you should know that even as you think you are a brother, you may not be. You could be deceived. And so what is, what is the author of Hebrews? What is his solution? He says, take care, which is just another way of saying be on guard. Examine yourselves. Walk carefully in this world. Understand the deceptive nature of sin. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about what the, de- the, the deceived heart looks like, the evil, unbelieving heart. I could talk a lot about the shoots of the tree, you know, the branches and the fruit of the tree. But I want to spend this last little bit of time together talking about the root of the unbelieving heart because I think that that's what Jesus addresses most specifically in this morning's text. So that leads me to our third point. Get the glory right. Get the glory right. Okay, so we know that the Jews don't understand Scripture because they don't believe in Jesus. That's why they don't understand who is the author and meaning and fulfillment of all Scripture. But that leads us to another question, doesn't it? It leads us to the question of why they don't believe in Jesus. And the answer is right there in verse 44. Look at it. And this is Jesus speaking rhetorically. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus says the reason why you don't believe is because you're looking for glory in all the wrong places. You want glory from other human beings instead of from God. Later in John, in chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus will put the matter even more clearly. He'll say this, For they loved human praise more than they loved praise from God. Now you may be thinking, well, Sean, he says rather than glory from God, does God glorify us? And then it says here, they loved human praise rather than praise from God. Does God praise us? I don't think we praise God. God doesn't praise us. Well, That's not exactly what this means. The word doxa that Jesus is using here in the Greek, it can be translated as glory or praise, but even conceptually, it can be translated as approve of, to validate, to give affirmation. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you look for the approval of human beings. You want human beings to look at you and say, I like you, I love you, you're good, more than you want God to say those things to you. And isn't that the point of this morning's text? Jesus, talking about John the Baptist bearing witness to him, he's, which is really just another way of saying, you know, John the Baptist approves of my ministry. He says this, I have John's approval, but just so you know, I don't need it. 
Well, why doesn't he need it? In the very next breath, he says, because I have the approval of God. I don't need John to bear witness about me or really any other man because God bears witness to me. And there's a lot to mine here. I'm going to try to give you three things. These are little sub-points. I don't have titles for them. We're just going to do it, okay? Sorry, note-takers. First, consider this. Our desires shape our beliefs. Our desires shape our beliefs. Said another way, our belief is the fruit on the tree. Our desires are at the root of the tree. What does that mean practically? It means if you don't want God because you want sin, then you will never believe in God. But Sean, you may be thinking, who wouldn't want God? Well, if you've been halfway paying attention to the Gospel of John, the answer is no one wants God. Left in our natural state, everyone hates the light. Everyone loves the darkness. Everyone wants their sin and they hate the light because the light comes and threatens to pull them out of the darkness and destroy their sin that they love so much. In order to illustrate this point, let me tell you about a youth pastor who would uh, often tell of his high school kids going off to college and then coming home. He said after several years, he noticed a phenomenon where the seniors would graduate, they would go off to college, And then a lot of them would come back and profess doubt. Many of them would even abandon the faith. You know, that was tough for him. Am I doing a good job, you know, shepherding these kids? I need to do better. But one of the things that he found was was that oftentimes when they would come home and he would really dig in and talk to them about what was going on in their hearts and what was going on with their spiritual lives, they actually didn't really have doubts at all. They had just gone off into sin. So pretty soon, he would find himself just leading with this as the first question. So, who are you sleeping with? Kid comes home and says, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I believe in Christianity anymore. And he, that would be his first question. You know, he said, you know, a lot of the time it would be like, yeah, actually I have found myself indulging in sin. When I first heard this, I thought it was overstated maybe to be most charitable and maybe if I was being less charitable I thought it was ridiculous but over the years I have actually found this to be profoundly true I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people walk away from Christ just to pursue sin just so that they could have the desires of their flesh just so that they could stop fighting temptation and just give in and just live with the world I have rarely, if ever, seen people walk away from Jesus because of errors in Scripture or because of some logical proof against the existence of God or because of some intellectually untenable aspect of the faith. No, the vast majority of the time when people leave the faith, it's a desire issue that's kind of just dressing up as something else. Could that be you this morning? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but maybe you feel like God has been doing something in your life, maybe you feel like God has been calling you, you feel like he's been drawing you to himself, 
and you find yourself resisting him, could it be that you're just afraid of losing whatever it is that you love more than you love God? Friend, what is it that you are just clinging so tightly to? Whatever it is, I don't know what it is. I don't know you, but you know. You're probably thinking of it right now. Whatever it is, I want you to know that no one has ever given up anything and then not found God to be infinitely more satisfying than the thing that they gave up. I've just never seen it to be the case. Every person who gives up sin and clings to Christ finds Christ to be immensely more satisfying. Not always, not without spot or blemish, not without seasons of weakness, but by and large, they have found Christ to be all satisfying. I've been through that. I didn't grow up as a Christian. I got saved as an adult. You can talk to anybody in this room and they can tell you that. Right now you're eating cat food, you know? You just got a big old can of wet cat food. You dumped it out in a bowl and you're eating it. And you're thinking, man, this is really good. I want to eat this all day, every day. Meanwhile, God is over here with a beautiful table set with a perfectly cooked filet mignon. Whatever thing you think would go with that, you know, mashed potatoes, baked potato, fried potato. He's offering you a banquet of delicacies that you can't even begin to imagine because your tastes have been attenuated to appreciate cat food. If that's you this morning, friend, I just want to challenge you to obey the psalmist who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The second thing that we should consider here is where we look for our approval. The issue in this morning's text isn't that the Jews are looking for approval from people. That's not the issue. That's normal. And in many ways, it's good. I want my daughters to want my approval. It's normal for husbands to seek affirmation from their wives. Employees thrive when their bosses encourage them and volunteers in the children's ministry renew their strength when someone comes along and says, hey, you're doing a really good job, right? I, I approve of what you're doing here. The issue that Jesus is addressing is when we seek affirmation from people rather than from God when we seek affirmation from people over and against God, more from people than from God. Does that confront you this morning? When you think about seeking the approval of mere humans, does that sound like something you do? You may be sitting there thinking, not me, Sean, I don't care what nobody thinks of me, I'm good. Yeah, right. Everyone cares a little too much about what other humans think of us more than God. We just wrestle with it in different ways. You think that doesn't happen in the church? Of course it does. You remember Matthew chapter 6? Jesus was talking about the Jews who would give and pray and fast in a way so that they could be seen by everyone. They weren't doing it so that God would see them and approve of them because they were being obedient out of love, they did it in such a way that everyone else would see them and applaud them. Oh, look how spiritual they are. 
It happens in the church still. Friends, this tendency, if left unnoticed, unmonitored, and unaddressed, will, I promise you, in the end, lead to your spiritual destruction. It will lead you to having an evil, unbelieving heart that you are perhaps not aware of. Any part of our lives that we conduct with more reference to the approval of man rather than God is a part of our lives that will shrivel up and die. The reason why Jesus is so faithful in his ministry and the Jews are so unfaithful in their ministry is because of where each one of these respective parties looks for glory, acceptance, approval, validation. Where do they look? The Jews, they look at one another. And how dumb is that? We've already seen that they are utterly corrupted by sin. They are witnesses who cannot bear testimony because of how corrupted they are by sin. These Jews want approval from those who do not know God or love God. Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me, and yet I do it. So what about you? Do you care more about what your coworkers think of you than what God thinks of you? Do you think more about what your unbelieving family thinks of you than what God thinks of you? Do you care more about the approval of this world than of the God who came to save this world? Do you want to be more liked by your unsaved friends and family and coworkers than you are loved by the members of this church? Why do we want so badly to be loved by those who don't love God? Especially when God has loved us so well. In this morning's text, we see that the approval of unbelievers means nothing to Jesus. And since we claim to follow Jesus, it should mean nothing to us. And the Father's approval means everything to Jesus, so it should mean everything to us. Friends, you should know that Christianity is a religion of tension, of truths that are perfectly balanced on a razor's edge. One truth of the gospel is that we are sinful, okay? It's just a fact. And I know that that word sin in our day is kind of emptied of any real meaning. It's kind of just the equivalent of like an oopsie-daisy, you know? Like I tried my best, but I couldn't quite make the birdhouse as nice as it's supposed to be. That's kind of what sin is. That's not what the Bible says that sin is. Sin means that we are lost, corrupted, depraved, ignorant, rebellious against the God who made us. It means that we are a stench in his holy nostrils. The gospel tells us that God can never approve of sin, which means that because we are sinners, God can never approve of us. Now, if that were the end of the story, this would be the saddest story of all. But it's not the end of the story. The gospel also says that we are loved. We are more loved than we could ever possibly imagine. The gospel says that God loved the world so much that he sent his son 
to die on the cross, not to just set an example for us, but to actually remove our sin, to cleanse us from the sin that is keeping God from approving of us. God cannot and will not approve of us in our sin, but he can and does call us to be made new in Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, God the Father said this. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Just stop and think about that for a minute. This is my son and I'm pleased by him. I love him. I approve of him. I grew up without a father, and I can tell you that one of the deepest desires of my heart has been to hear my father say to me, I'm well pleased by you. I love you. Sean, I approve of you. We all have that desire. It's called father hunger. And it's the proof that all of us are estranged children of our father in heaven. And we look for that validation. We look for those words sadly because of our sin in every other place than the place where we should look. Instead of turning back to God and turning away from sin, we turn to the world and we say, well, I guess if he's not gonna approve of my sin, maybe you will. And the world is all too happy to accommodate. Yeah, I approve of you, buddy, just the way you are, sure. Sin and all. But that's not love. And that approval will lead you to hell. I want you to know that in this whole confrontation here, Jesus may seem like a big meanie, you know? It may seem like he's just beating up on the Jews, like he's just bludgeoning them to a pulp without offering them any mercy. And I want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. Look at verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is saying all these really hard things to the Jews so that they will turn from their sin, so that they'll turn away from the world, and so that they'll believe in him and be saved. And he's saying these things for us this morning for the same reason, so that we may be saved. Friends, do you know that on the cross, Jesus sacrificed his Father's glory On the cross, Jesus gave up his Father's approval and validation by becoming sin. He took our sin on his shoulders. He suffered God's wrath. The Father turned his face away. That's the opposite of, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And he did that so that you can be received so that you can receive the glory of the Father, so that you can receive praise from God, so that you can be loved and approved of by him. But the crucifixion isn't the last word. After three days in the grave, dead as a doornail, God raised his son from the grave. 
giving his final approval not only to his life but also to his sacrificial death. A death that he died to save you. And now all that is required of you is that you believe. Jesus says, this is the work that the Father requires, that you believe in the Son. That's it. That's, that's all you have to do. But I'm not going to lie to you, and I'm not going to tell you that it's easy to do this. Jesus says that everyone who's going to follow him as a disciple needs to count the cost of being his disciple. And I want you to count the cost this morning if you're considering following Christ. Whether that's because you've never professed to be a Christian or because you're here and you thought that you were a Christian, but maybe now you're starting to realize that you're not a Christian, but you want to be a Christian. I want you to know that making that decision to be more faithful to Jesus, it will cost you. It's a promise. It will cost you friends who don't approve of your new faith. You know, they like to old you better. And by the way, if you're here and if you have started following Jesus and none of your friends feel different around you, that's something to consider. It may cost you family. You know what I'm talking about. The family who just misses the old days when all you cared about was their approval. When you were just living for them and for their glory. It could cost you in your career. It could cost you in the community. It can cost you in your savings account. It could cost you in your church, visitors, when one day you look around and realize that you're not in a church at all. You're in a cult. You're in a country club. This thing isn't a church. And then you stand up for Christ, it's going to cost you. People want you to want their acceptance. They want you to want their approval. And they hate it when they see you content in Jesus. Why? Because you make them feel like gods when you crave their glory. And when you stop craving their glory, you rob them of their glory. So then, in closing, let every single person in this room resolve right now to break our addiction to the approval of this world. Put it to death. Crucify it with every other sin that was nailed to Christ on the cross. Let's put away the old man, put on the new, and pursue approval in Jesus so that our faith might be proved, proven to be genuine. Let's pray. Father God, you have cut us to the heart as we've looked into the mirror of your word and seen our sinfulness but you've also shown us the glory of your son Jesus Christ you've, seen, you've shown him to us high and lifted up and then when we look at him God we know we see you and so God we, we trust that that vision will sustain us and carry us through and work sanctification in us God, protect our hearts. Keep us pure in Christ so that we might bear witness to a lost and dying world about the love that you have given to us in the gospel. Amen.